Doggies have always been known as our best friends, and now science is proving that they can be our best doctors. So join author Maria Gudovich and I in studio today for her new book, Dr. Dogs. This is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Book Circle Online. I am Tammy Govea, and I'm joined in studio today by Maria Gudovich. Close enough. Gudovich. Yes. Thank you. But Gudovich. I respond to anything. It sounds like Godiva. Yeah. That's how I was trying to remember I've heard it. that a few times in, <laughs> in grammar school, yeah. A few other things, yeah. <laughs> so we are here today to talk about a lot of things, but in particular, your amazing book, Dr. Dogs. Just want to put that up here one more time. And we'll be showing this throughout the show, Dr. Dogs. I was saying earlier that this was an emotional read for me because I'm such a a doggy person. I was actually getting very teary-eyed and there were some stories that actually made me cry. And just the, I loved the blend of the science And when I started to get overwhelmed with the science, you always coupled it with a a really emotional, beautiful story that tied it all together. Yeah, thank you. I tried to make the science really accessible by doing the heavy lifting myself (laughs) and, um, and tying in these really poignant, gripping stories. And some are funny, definitely some cute stories, some humorous stories mixed in, but definitely is a Kleenex worthy read sometimes. And I saw your humor as well. I mean, even if the story in and of itself right, was heavy, yes. Yes. Um, you definitely have a wonderful sense of humor that came Thank through. Thank you. <laughs> you know, consistent throughout the book. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about what Dr. Dogs, it's, like, how do you condense all of this? Yeah. But, you know, try to uh, just tell us a little bit in general, give us an umbrella of what it's about. Sure. Um, well, Dr. Dogs themselves are this great new job of dog that's really cutting edge. They're on the cutting edge of medicine. They're kind of like doctors on the leading edge of medicine, but they happen to be dogs. And some work in research settings. Now, let's just get this out of the way. They're not beagles locked away in cages Thank you. in research labs. Gosh, I never even thought about that, but there yeah. might be some people that have Right. That. When I say research dogs yes. in laboratories, that to me conjures that. So I just really like to clear that up. These are usually pet dogs who are highly trained or foster dogs in some cases who go into these research settings, maybe at universities or just places that do this research alone. And they are able to sniff out various diseases, several kinds of cancers in these laboratory settings, Parkinson's and some superbugs and even uh, malaria, which is now being tested uh, somewhere in Africa. They're doing their first test run with the dogs in country. So that's exciting. So those are those are more the research-oriented dogs. Maybe they're like the MD-PhDs of dogs. <laughs> and then they have uh, we have the dogs who we write a lot about in the book, and they're the ones who work at the side of their person, and they are life-saving dogs, soul-saving dogs. They're highly trained, usually by virtue of their nose, to detect things like um, diabetic lows in people with type 1 diabetes. Seizures, they can detect seizures 15 minutes or more ahead of time. Um, They have some cardiovascular dogs out there now. Some of them are very self-trained. Migraine alert dogs, some strange sleep disorders, which are helped by dogs, and also um, a number of mental health conditions for which dogs are being used now, including you've 
PTSD is probably the biggest one. They're very, very helpful in that and general anxiety. And I even have a young woman in there who has a dog for her schizophrenia. She was, we can probably talk about that later, but her life has changed. Everyone's life has changed because of their dogs. And the dogs are doing this by virtue of their noses. So primarily, there may be other things at work, but they are being trained to detect oncoming whatever's uh, problems because they can sniff it out. And that's really new that we're realizing what dogs can smell. If it has a scent, dogs can be trained to smell it. It's just a matter of how to do that. So um, just the fact that they can smell a low blood sugar in someone. Well, that's what blew my mind. You talk, you talk about scenarios of people with type 1 diabetes, and I would love for you to get into that and explain what that feels like for someone who is diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, because it can be so debilitating. Um, but you speak of type 1 diabetes and you know children and people who have seizures, um, bipolar. There's actually a scent associated? Yes, and we don't, as humans, we do not know what that is. That's the mystery. So we somehow came, actually, we can probably talk about the first cancer detection dog who did this on her own later, but somehow we started realizing that, wow, dogs can smell bombs and bad guys. I've written these other books about military dogs, secret service service dogs. And so this is just another use. This is another way they're protecting us and saving our lives and being heroes. And really, it's their noses because their noses are so sensitive, they can detect in parts per trillion, which looks something like a tablespoon of a substance in two Olympic-sized swimming pools, that sort of that sized. And um, it's just so, so phenomenal they can do this. They have... Well, we humans have 6 million olfactory receptors. Dogs have 300 million. They are set up for this. And you know, like I like to say that their olfactory world is kind of like our visual world. It's really rich and vivid. So someone I know, one of the scientists I talked to said dogs smell in color. Okay, they don't really smell in color, but it's a great image that gives you the idea that how rich that is. But and you what do mention 3D. Smell. 3D, yeah. yeah they're, which they're, is a great visual. Their noses, their their nostrils they're finding can sniff in different directions and they'll use one nostril for one thing sometimes and another. This was just found that they use one nostril to sniff fear in people and another one to sniff fear in dogs. And yes, emotions even have a scent that dogs are able to pick up on. It's amazing what science is learning. We kind of know this from when we're having a bad day at home, dogs will sidle up to us a little more. When we're happy, they're just all wagging. Now, a lot of that could be body language and whatever we're doing uh, in that case. But like my dog is not trained to, to smell me when I'm happy, but he knows and he just goes along with the program. But these dogs... Um, in some of the cases where, let's say, PTSD, some people are training the dogs to detect an oncoming anxiety attack. And and so what they do is they would uh, have the person they're going to be matched with uh, swab their skin with a cotton ball and also um, do a saliva sample into the cotton ball. They use those samples like just before or when they're in an anxiety attack. Okay. They use those samples to train the dogs on that. So it's not really necessary to do that for training, but it just gives the dogs a little leg up, shall we say, um, <laughs> about how how to really tell what that scent of their person is going to be, just as they do with diabetes and a number of other scents. Now, not all doggies are cut out for this, correct? Well, or- yes, this is true. Um, it's not really about the breed, though, because almost any breed can do this. I've seen everything from a tiny Pomeranian who sniffs out Parkinson's in Washington State to big German shepherds who are sniffing out ovarian cancer and every breed in between. I would say labs 
are the most common Labrador retrievers. I have one. I know that they love to smell. But beyond that, the biggest qualifier for a dog who wants one of these cool jobs is that they have to love to work for treats. They have to love food. But don't they all? mm, No? They're not willing necessarily to work for it, though. They, They have to really be willing to work hard for that treat or that bounce of a ball and the praise. Some dogs just go, yeah, you know, whatever. But labs in particular are really into it. And some dogs are really picky and they won't take just any treat that they're given. So um, that dog, that dog uh, I mentioned in in Washington State, she's a bit of a diva. She's a Pomeranian. She's a Pomeranian. That kind of goes with the territory. Yeah. And yeah. so she actually wears, <laughs> yeah, she wears a tutu to work <laughs> and she gets turkey, real turkey as her reward. And she will not work for anything less, but they know that and they work with her. But um, really the dogs just have to be reward driven and energetic and able to focus. So I think my dog Gus, who is a yellow lab, could do it. He, I'm starting him on a little nose work in my house and it's it's working out. Dogs love jobs. And so the one dogs, the one type of dog I haven't seen are pugs and dogs with the smushed in noses. Mm. I'm not sure if it's because of their sense of smell or if it's something that just hasn't been tried yet. I remember reading the story of Clay Ronk and his doggy Whitley and um, diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 7 and just what I don't have diabetes knock on wood in my family so I've never experienced the emotional impact yeah. that that has, not just on the person that's diagnosed, but in particularly the family. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about Clay? The, he diagnosed at seven. He's 19 or 20 yeah, 19, now? 19. Where is he at and, and what's their story? Okay, well, it began with this emergency situation up in Northern California when he was seven. He was a little sick and then he was very sick and then he went to the hospital and basically they said he's probably going not going to make it unless we get him to a better hospital they airlifted him to San Francisco where they were able to get his what was going on under control and then his parents were tasked with for the rest of his young days making sure he stayed healthy and he took a very vital part in this he was able so he had all the monitors eventually and he was able to to look but you know they it was. It's hard. It's really hard on the parents, and um, they were monitoring him night and day. And they had read an article about diabetic alert dogs, and they were pretty new back then. But they were not able to get one until he was fourteen. And they. So, was there a waiting list? There's type a waiting thing? list. Okay, that organization, Dogs for Diabetics, does great work. They're up in Northern California. Um, they have a waiting list, and they also were not able to um, let a child under, I think it was 12 or 14, have wow. a dog. Some places do, but they didn't. And so, and then they had a waiting list, and then you have to go through really intensive training, and the dog does, and then you take a dog home kind of as a trial. And one day after the training, he was waiting and hopeful, but nothing was happening. And they asked him if he wanted to take this other dog that he was expecting, then he was expecting. Her name was Whitley, home. And she alerted to him that weekend. It was an immediate bond. They wanted to keep her so much, and they did end up being able to keep her. She has been with him a number of years now because he's 19, and uh, she is devoted to him. She's partners, part second mother part best friend. She just looks after him. When she, when he goes out, I've seen pictures of this, <laughs> when he goes to school, when he was in high school, um, she would just sit by the door 
and wait. She just had the saddest look. She was waiting for her boy to come back. And then she ended up going to high school with him. But he would go to camps. He would go uh, to places where he couldn't take her. And that was really hard for her. But now, uh, well, she became a star of the high school. She graduated with him. Everybody knew Whitley. And she can tell him 15 or 20 minutes ahead of when his monitor tells him that he's going low. She can tell him so he can he can have that much more time. He checks it again, makes sure she's right. And she's always right. Um, she can actually wake up out of a sleep to alert to him. She did that early on when they first got her and they couldn't believe it because not all dogs do that. It doesn't mean she's a light sleeper, but like, if have you ever been asleep and you smell bacon or coffee and, it, and yeah. you wake up, yeah. you go, oh, yeah. bacon, coffee. Well, that's kind of like the scent of diabetes, whatever that scent is, because we don't know, of a diabetic low to a dog who's been trained to really hone in on that. And it's it starts out that, yeah, she wanted her treat, but it's definitely a love and devotion situation now. She would do it for free, of course, but she always still gets a treat. And so now she's at college with him. She's at his side. She's like big dog on campus. Everybody loves her. And she still <laughs> she still is under his table in classes just as she was in high school, and he's doing great. Now, when you speak about a dog alerting, what, what does that translate to? Okay. What does that mean? So in that case, it's an unusual circumstance. Diabetic alert dogs often have this kind of a durable cloth um, tag, a long tag, hanging off of their collar, and they will grab it with their mouth and stare at the person. So they, there's no doubt. And like They're not just staring at you. They are telling you something. They're grabbing. It's called a brinzel. They're grabbing this and staring at you. Sometimes they're doing a bow. So that's how those dogs do it. But sometimes like, like a seizure alert dog or other kinds of dogs will just sit and look at you or lie down and look at you in a certain way that they don't do. And the, the people who have them know their change of behavior, and they know that alert. In, um, in research settings, they are trained to sit and stare, or some will lie down and stare. One, when I was in England, one little really wild dog, it was a Monday for her, and she hadn't gotten it out of her system yet, so she was running around. She would run up to a sample of, uh, it was Staphylococcus or something, some kind of superbug, and she would run up to it and start pawing at paw, 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 and skin around, and, and finally she calmed down, but they don't want her doing that because you don't want the dog's paws on the samples, and so some dogs are a bit enthusiastic, and they just kind of tame that. So alerts can look like a lot of different things, and people who who are paired with their dogs definitely know what that know looks what like. Know what the signs are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was reading in the book too that sometimes the alert, so I don't remember which one, but they were asleep and the doggy was trying to wake them up and they weren't waking up. Maybe it was Clay because he was slipping into yeah, a, a. That was Clay. Dive. Yeah, they were slipping into. He a, could have been in a coach. She, yeah. she actually ended up um, standing on top of him. And she had never been trained to this, pounding That's her paws just... into him. And she had probably been doing this for a while because he woke up and she was just like, God, get up. So, and, and she does go get his parents as well. Well, she did when he, she lived with him. I actually have, <laughs> it's not just dogs. We do have a few cats who crept into the footnotes. And there was a cat who did that, an untrained cat. who. And there are several papers about cats who sniff out <laughs> these things at diabetic lows. And one was trying to tell his person, you're in trouble. And the person went into a coma and so the cat went and got the guy's girlfriend but that's just an aside and my next book is not going to be called clinician cats because that just there's not enough for a whole book maybe a (laughs) half a chapter (laughs) i know too when i was reading because you broke this down so so nicely um when the chapters about autism and seizures 
um, and the seizures in particular, the story with DeVore and his family. Mm-hmm. Now they, in, they're in Croatia. Croatia, Zagreb, yeah. Um, and we'll get to your global trekking, which is amazing as well. Um, but, you know, I, I couldn't help but feel, I mean, this is a family in Croatia. It's not, I mean, it's hard enough here in the U.S., to yeah. find help and to find information. Yeah. And here's this family in Croatia and this sweet little divorce. And Frida yes. comes along. And then Nina, please tell the story. You have this, such a good memory. Well, it's just so amazing. <laughs> yeah, so divorce was about... Oh, he was a young boy. I think he was four or five years old when he had his first seizure. It was um, it was during it was around the time of the bombings of Zagreb. It was a very emotional time for the family. Um, they thought it was just a strange phenomenon, but he started having more seizures and more seizures, and they didn't know what to do. He would just be so debilitated. And this is a family, a very close family, uh, two parents and a, his older sister and him, uh, his younger sister actually. She. She was, they're all so supportive, and they'd heard about a dog who helped someone else with something else. I can't remember what it was, but something. And they went to, basically, they went to a guide dog foundation there and said, can you help us? And this foundation had helped that other person with, it wasn't seizures, but they decided, let's read up on it. Let's try this. They paired him with sweet Frida as a puppy. That's not normal, but it worked. It worked. They they just paired them so that she could be with him, and she started training herself to... It was kind of mutual because they started working with her. Like, when she started getting interested before he had a seizure or doing some kind of change of behavior, they would reward her. And so she started associating that smell with that. And she would also do this thing where she would lick him in the face when he did go into a seizure, mm-hmm. she would lick him in the face. And these points, which are known to actually stimulate uh, the whatever's going on in the brain, so that could For help someone him. who's having a seizure? For someone who's health, having a seizure or about to have a, a seizure, there are these, um, there's a vagal nerve, and there, they, it's, there is actually a vagal nerve stimulator that one of the people in the book has that the dog can kind of set off before she has a seizure or while she's in it to stop it. He's wearing something on his collar, and he puts his chest by her chest, and she's able to either stop it or whatever. But that seems they don't know, but they say it may be related somehow. So the dog just instinctively knew how to do this. And um, she helped him so much. At least he could take a shower without with with some kind of warning that, okay, if you're, your dog did not say you're going to have a seizure, you can take a shower. He could he could walk around. And when his dog told him he's going to have a seizure, she, she would usually sit or whine. She would get very antsy. It wasn't the typical trained seizure alert but they knew when he was about to have a seizure she would go come in from outside she would be in the garden and she was another one of those kind of worrywart mom dogs and she would come in and start whining crying and looking at him sure enough within a few minutes he'd have a seizure and he has a number of different kinds of seizures he has a very pretty bad seizure disorder at one point he was having hundreds of seizures a year oh my gosh yeah and it part of it is um that he changed medications. Part of it is just that at some point the seizures just, it goes one way or the other. They slowed down, but part of it was that she was able to tell him ahead of time so he could take whatever the medication was that might help this stop a little bit uh, sooner than it would. But he's now, Frida 
is no longer with us, but she helped train Nina, their next dog. She actually helped train her on everything that she learned. They would do everything together, including she even trained her how to chew a bone with her paws <laughs> just in a certain way. She did everything. So she passed the baton before she passed on. So sweet. And That's amazing. Nina's doing the great work now. I actually walked in on them in Zagreb, in their home on the outskirts of Zagreb. I knocked on the door just after he started a seizure. And he was on the floor. Um, he was just kind of coming out of it. She had already licked his face, and he was there, but he was still in that sort of stunned stage. And they let him relax, and then she, she went and licked his face a little more. And with the help of his father, who has been doing this all of his life pretty yeah. much, um, he, he got him up and got him to a couch where, where he could settle down. It's amazing. That's so, I mean, just I'm just in awe. Yeah, me too. I'm just in awe. Me too. It's just, and it's not just the rewards. I mean, I, they don't. <laughs> she gets rewards, but there's this love, and I, it's great risk of anthropomorphizing. But these dogs come to love their people and to to just care so much about them, and that becomes their life. And the work they do seems to have so much meaning to them, and and they love doing it. Now, I know what I do appreciate so much about this book is all the scientific backup. Um, But how much of this do you think is kind of a a sixth sense sort of thing? Um, I think in the case of seizures, maybe there's a little something more at work, although they are being trained now on the scent. And some dogs have uh, trained on the scent, have met their person, the person they've been matched with who smell they've been smelling uh, while they're training. And within a couple of hours, they're going, you're going to have a seizure and they have a seizure. So that's just scent. Um, but there may be a lot more at work than than we know. But they are trained on the scent, so that's what the book is about. But there is conjecture sometimes in some of these papers. Could it be, it, obviously, it could be our body language that we don't even know. It could be a change in heart rate, a change in something that's going on in our brain. One paper that was about seizures even says something about a change in the energy waves. That was an older paper. But, <laughs> and um, who knows? But we energy, really everything's know. energy. Right. So, you know, that, that, that was the only time I read that, but it could be any number of things. What they're being trained on, though, is the scent, and science is working to find out what these smells are that they're smelling, because um, they're, the dogs, say, who detect cancer are not going to be in the back room of your doctor's office going, yeah, cancer, no, not cancer. Um, it's going to become technology at some point, because, you know, dogs are only human, they make mistakes, they get tired, and this is not a task we want to see dogs doing on a daily basis. This is going to, at some point, maybe in the not-too-distant future, become technology where we discover what the volatile organic compounds or the patterns of those are. The VOCs. Oh, my gosh, those VOCs. I saw (laughs) that. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm not going to get this. Okay, I get it. (laughs) Yeah, VOCs, they're just the scent that comes off of a lot of things, and including us. And we are made of thousands of VOCs, but there is a particular VOC to – well, science doesn't know yet if there is one – scent that is super detectable over all cancers, if there's, say, a signature smell that these dogs are picking up on all cancers, or if each individual cancer has a fingerprint smell Mm. and maybe there's an overall smell. So we don't know. And this is just at the very exciting beginning stages. The dogs are working with scientists around the globe who are checking in with them. They have um, something called GCMS. This is hard to say. Gas chromatography, magnetic spectrometry. And that is a chemical analysis uh, technique machine um, that 
they will look at what the they'll take some molecules and say could you be could this be what you're smelling doggy and the dog doesn't alert to that smell when they give it to them so they say could this be it and so they're working with the dogs hand in hand hand and paw and <laughs> and seeing what portion of what this could be what 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 the dogs are smelling so that the idea is one day there could be an e-nose which is an electronic nose or something you could even go to your doctor's office and breathe into a tube and it can test you for these things that they found that the dogs can discover and um and it's non-invasive they're hoping it's going to be inexpensive and quite uh, hopefully very accurate because dogs in the right settings are very accurate and so they want basically these things to mimic a dog's nose and the dogs will have passed that baton on to technology and and now and then they'll just be they'll have been this beautiful part of the history of why we were able to detect some cancers yes. early because some cancers we have one in our family that is not easily detectable early it's ovarian cancer and usually that's detected too late my mom died from it and i've been discovering more of our relatives in italy did and so um it's something i'm rooting for in a big way i have skin yeah. in this game and i really really hope the dogs are doing this at the university of pennsylvania working dog center they're so good at sniffing out ovarian cancer and i'm not talking tumors um, they're not just you know putting a piece of a tumor in a test tube they they are they are sniffing out plasma of someone with ovarian cancer blood plasma so a portion of the blood sort of the yellow part of the blood when you get you separate it all so they're sniffing that out and the dogs are able to smell one drop of this in in a the little cup that's uh, around a kind of a carousel with other things that smell maybe you know like um plasma from someone with an ovarian tumor that is benign or just regular plasma and and other things and the dogs can tell this one drop and even got so low as they took a drop of plasma a drop of saline mixed them together and took one drop from that so it's half of basically half a drop and it's diluted and the dog can still smell that they want to see how low the dog can go so that because the VOCs that the the chemical analysis te- analysis technique are working with it's it's low and the dogs need to be able to s- smell the lowest type that they can get the lowest type that they can get and it's amazing that they can smell half a drop you know of of plasma and still oh yes this person has ovarian cancer and they've been sniffing it out as early as stage 1 well that was my question i mean the the issue as you said with ovarian cancer is it's not getting caught in early stages, right. because it's so hard to detect. Yeah. So it looks like the goal is, like, on the horizon, being able to to catch it in, in early the early stages. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's probably not going to be the dogs um, at the laboratories. It's going to be something. It could even be this device called a cell phone uh, that we all have. <laughs> so our smartphones. According to a man I interviewed at MIT, his goal is to see our smartphones being able to sniff us all the time based on what the dogs and the scientists have learned about chemical changes. And and a big um, study he wants to do with about 50,000 people, uh, maybe he can get Google or Samsung or someone in on this to to let the phones do this. And um, eventually he wants to be able to have your phone say, there's some change here, go see your doctor. Um, They'll be able to sniff us based on this. And he's MIT, and he is sure this is going to happen. So I'm I'm all for that. It's so exciting. Yeah. It's so exciting. It sounds like, you know, when I watch the Star Trek episodes. Yeah. And the technology, you know, the stories that they came up with, and now today... 
yeah, and maybe some of those work they came yeah. about because of dogs. I mean, who knows, right? It's such it would be so nice, such an easy thing to just go, you know, breathe into something yeah. or have something touch your skin and, and tell. And I do think it's on the horizon. Some no one's saying what the timeline is. One doctor says maybe five years for the the very first ones, but we'll see. There's still a lot of work to be done and we're just at the beginning stages because it is so cutting edge of knowing what dogs can do. Now that we're realizing if it has a smell, dog can detect it and do really well with it, the the gates are starting to open and more places around the world are doing this kind of research. And again, the the, the dogs are just really happy to do this work. We've talked about um, medical situations, but these doggies are also working more in a psychiatric capacity. Mm -hmm. And you talk about men and I'm sure women as well with PTSD. And there was one um, example that you cited in the book, Army veteran Will Nobles deployed to Iraq twice and returned home with PTSD. He was prescribed various medications. And the, what he says, he says, I've, I've hardly had any angry outbursts since Hartnett, his dog. He's brought out the real me. <laughs> no, you're going to get me going. Oh, me- medicine <laughs> only hit it. Yeah. Yep. The um, the real him. Medicine just masqueraded. That was it. He was dead. He was he felt like a zombie with the medicine, and that's what it did. It kept him from um, angry outbursts, but it also kept him from being him. And so the dog immediately let him become him. He was able to slowly get off the medications. He's he may still be on one or two, just nothing much, very minor. And his dog is everything to him. And his dog knows, has been trained. Now, this mayor, this dog was not trained on scent. This dog just knows. Um, there is body language at work. This dog was trained in jail, in prison, in West Virginia. I oh, actually, my goodness. Yeah, I actually went up to the prisons and spent time up there with the dogs and watching how the inmates worked with the dogs. It's beautiful. It's and how beautiful. therapeutic is that? It gives them, for some of them, it's, they say it's the first good thing they've done for someone else other than themselves. They've been selfish all their lives. And this re- they, it makes them realize when they get out how they can change and how much better of a person they can be, knowing that they're going to be changing the lives of someone through this dog. And they bond with the dog. And um, I, was, I was there when everybody was kind of, their dogs were in transit from one prison to another or coming back down to North Carolina with us. I drove in the van through the Appalachians with the group that did this and with 12 dogs in the back. It smelled. Uh, <laughs> and it was loud for a while, but then the dogs settled down. But but knowing that they're able to do that, and Will's dog was was he started he started his training in prison. They finished up in North Carolina, and that dog is really everything. His wife says it's his second wife, but the dog wakes him up from nightmares. The dog leans into Harnett leans into him when he's feeling tense. When before he even knows he's feeling tense, Harnett is leaning his body into him. Or there are certain commands he says that will. Harnett will just put his, I can't remember exactly which one it is, but he'll put his head on his lap really hard and just stay there and melt into him. And that just takes his anxiety down. And Harnett goes to work with him. He's just part of him. And I I just, I hope 
more of these dogs will be available to veterans and others with PTSD. It's hard because if you don't have PTSD, it is difficult. If you don't have, a, sorry, if you're not a veteran, it is hard to get a dog if you have PTSD. There's a woman I wrote about in the book um, who experienced uh, sexual abuse as a child, and she had a hard time finding a place that would make a dog for her. And she got one, and, and the dog was the reason to get out of bed in the morning, and the dog could tell her when she was having this. Yeah. Why was it difficult? For her to get a dog. Because most of the places that are training the dogs for PTSD are training them for veterans. And I think that's great, and it's incredibly important and a very noble cause. But it would be nice to see more places open the doors to other people with PTSD, because there are a lot of reasons for PTSD, not just veterans. And I I think that's happening more, especially now. She actually became a trainer, a dog trainer, and so she knows that other people need dogs who for PTSD who are not veterans. And veterans desperately need them, and they're saving lives. I mean, that the, the, the suicide figures are huge. Yeah, and, it's devastating. Yeah, and, and um, having a dog alone is helpful, but having that dog be your partner and your psychiatric care dog, is service dog, is so important. They go everywhere with them. And I think there's a responsibility that they feel as well because the dog loves them, and they, they want to be here for the dog. Their family, yes, but the dog really depends on them, and the dog gives them so much. I know there was a story, um, I believe the the woman was bipolar, and her doggy would actually, when she would start to get, in, she was hearing voices, and start, you become disassociated, you you know, you start slipping away, I can yeah. only, I, I'm assuming, from what I was reading, and the doggy was able to, just by the touch, be able to get her back into reality? That was actually, um, we have someone with bipolar who had someone, something similar to that, but um, this was a a young woman who had schizophrenia, and um, she, really badly, and she started, um, she started hearing voices when she was only about six years old. She didn't tell anybody, and they were telling her how horrible she is and how she should kill herself, and she saw them. So she had both visual and auditory hallucinations, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until she was 15 and tried to kill herself after they finally convinced her um, that her parents even realized this was going on. She said nothing. She said nothing. Her best friend knew, and her best friend knew she was going to try to kill herself that day and was frantically trying to get in touch with her mother. It's a very dramatic story. It was very hard to tell because it was, it was just, as a parent, you know, you can't even imagine. But um, the girl survived. She got a lot of psychiatric care. But eventually the parents heard about dogs and they thought, yeah, I wonder if we can tr- train one of our dogs. They have a big old lab named Hank. <laughs> and so they sent him away for training one time while she was hospitalized for a few months. They sent him away to be trained to work with her, just to settle her, just as I discussed with PTSD, how they can be very calming and how they can come in for a hug and just that physical contact and, and some other things. Like he was trained to prevent her from cutting. Her parents mm. didn't know, but starting at 11, she started cutting herself, self-harm, and... Um, she, when she attempted this a couple of times when Hank was with her, he would he would jump up and prevent her from doing it, and it gave her that, that out, and she realized she shouldn't do it. But just by virtue of Hank being a really friendly dog, just this is nothing he was trained on, um, but Hank is one of those dogs, like my dog, who will greet anybody, like, hi, how are you doing? Even really <laughs> bad guys, probably. Well, bad guys, I think my dog would do something, but <laughs> Hank is just so friendly. And so she started realizing that there's a difference 
if Hank isn't greeting these evil people like the man with the brown fedora and all the evil people who are with him and the terrible voices, if he's not going, how you doing, guys, that this is a hallucination. So just because he was a dog being his usual doggy self and not greeting them, she was able to separate reality from these terrible hallucinations and I, I, nothing yes. he was trained on. You know, just any dog could probably help with that. Well. You have to know how to read your dog. And so it was she realized this. And so he is able to help her keep in reality or help her get a check. And by doing this, he's getting rid of these horrible bad guys, at least temporarily. I know when I was reading this, you know, Finley was usually by my side while I was reading. And I started looking at him more. Yes. Yeah. You said. <laughs> what do you know? They I know. wish you could speak. I know. Well, what do you know? <laughs> it's true. What I would love if I could ask my dog one question, be like, Tell me what you really want to tell me, and what you besides what you need more. What what do you know? How do you, I want to yeah. know how you smell things, and and what else you do? But you know, at the end of the book, I do have an epilogue that that talks about if dogs could talk, because there's technology coming on board now that um, might one day enable the dogs to kind of talk to us. They have wearable vests now, where um, a dog can. It's just in the beginning stages at Georgia Tech, but a dog can pull on different pulleys or push his nose by a, a like a you know when you put your hands under the faucet and it goes on. They have that uh, proximity sensor, different sensors, and the dog will be able to tell somebody um, if their person needs help. Like they have this thing where they go up to someone and they tug on it and they say, "Excuse me, uh, my owner needs help. Please follow me." And they have to do it twice because the person always kind of looks around and goes, "What? What?" The first time, and then the person. Is supposed to follow this sort of modern day lassie, yeah. and um, the hope for this vest is they will be able to um, have it for maybe someone with a seizure disorder. They're out in public, they're not paying as much attention to their dog. They're at a party or something, and the dog will be able to do something. You know, you're going to have a seizure. Please, you know, come in here. There's also touchscreen te- technology that the dog. They're hoping dogs will one one day be able to use. They. Touchscreens are a little bit hard. They're using a big one at Georgia Tech right now as a prototype, but they had the whole slobber factor, confounding <laughs> factor. <laughs> you know, it's hard enough with our fingers or eating pizza, but a dog's nose kind of, they worked around that somehow. It's Georgia Tech. They figured it out, and now it's no longer a confounding factor. And they're hoping to make the touchscreens small and um, probably use them in research settings first, maybe for cancer, maybe saying it's this kind of cancer, or maybe if the dog is just trained, say, on prostate cancer, um, this is it, and this is how strong it smells to me. Because right now, all they can do is alert. They can't tell us how how far along the cancer is. And so it's nice to, to know that if they can easily do that. And maybe the dog will just be a quick little quick little nose slider or something like that. Also, in, in war or wherever there are bombs, maybe the dogs will be able to say, um, this is uh, C4, or this is something incredibly unstable. They just—they're mm. they're working on the icons, the colors, the contrasts, and seeing what really works for the dogs to be able to use this. And then, in in homes, they'll be able to. Well, the dogs already summon nine one one for usually seizure alert. Dogs have a life alert button where they can push it and call nine one one or next of kin or someone who can be there. I have no idea hitting the fan really badly. Yeah, so they need to kind of know when to do this. Sometimes it's just they do it anyway and they call the person's loved one just to let them know. And that can set off the whole chain reaction. Sometimes if the person lives alone and has no one, it goes right to 911. So, yeah, it's amazing what what they can do. And maybe they soon will be able to talk to us. I don't really know if I want 
Gus to talk. Yeah. You know, it's kind of part of Our the little charm. Secrets. Yeah. Like, you, you, know. can, you can tell them anything and they won't tell <laughs> anyone know. and they won't try to advise us and they won't. But in, for these settings, it's it would be nice um, for some people to have a little more communication from the dog. You've talked about some amazing organizations that you've worked with and interviewed just around the world, which surprised me that globally this was such, this was a topic that seems to be embraced globally. Yeah. Yes, and it is it is widening every year. Uh, if I, I've always wanted to go to Australia, but unfortunately, they didn't have this <laughs> going in Australia until after the book was turned in. Otherwise, I'd have been there in heartbeat. They're doing cancer research down there now and uh, at a university. I did go to Japan. Actually, you would never guess in this remote village about a four and a half hour Shinkansen, right? like bullet train north uh, ride north of Tokyo, and then another half hour ride. Um, it's in this bucolic little village. Uh, it's, I guess it's a town, and they're very forward-thinking because when a doctor approached them, he, a doctor just went there to give a talk about um, how amazing animals are at detecting uh, a lot of things, not just disease, but he talked about military animals. And it was just an interesting lecture. He liked the area, so he just decided to go talk to the people. And the the mayor said can dogs detect cancer? And the doctor was already, he was in Tokyo, he was already working on some research with dogs and cancer. And they ended up doing this amazing study with this town that has, a, it's, it's an area, it has about, um, they had about a thousand samples from the people in the town. They gave urine samples because this town has the highest, this area has the highest rate of stomach cancer in all of Japan, which is so weird. It's this beautiful cedar trees and nature everywhere. And um, it's partly the diet. It, it, he doesn't really know why. The question wasn't really so much about why, but about early and rapid detection and if dogs could detect this rapidly in a screening setting. So it's really different when you're in a study where everybody knows what's going on and when the, the important thing is when to reward the dog, right? So you know, someone in that room, someone behind the screen knows when that dog gets rewarded. Yes, that's cancer, give him the treat. But in a screening study, you don't know when to reward the dog. And so it was hard. It was really hard to get accurate results from the dogs. The dogs did pretty well. But um, it, it, it was a realization that this is not something that is going to be used um, in an everyday basis because you, if you can't reward the dog, they're going to start wondering, well, what am I doing wrong or what's going on? So um, I just love that the town took part in this and people were really into it. And I was there when the townspeople were meeting about it and they were excited. It was the second meeting and they, they were working on getting more samples. And they're following the few people that the dog said yes but don't have anything with cancer they're they're doing follow-up screenings every six months or every year now to just check up on check in with them and make sure that they're okay so it's not like they just got them scared and it could be nothing it could just be an artifact and they're trying not to worry the people but it's happening just everywhere there's it's going on in thailand i didn't get to go there but it's um all over europe uh, the dogs are being trained and even uh, even in parts of africa now you're going to see more of these mm. dogs trained for malaria detection because that seemed to really work dogs were um, in England, sniffing the socks of children with malaria and uh, and some children without malaria, and they can nail it. At first, though, what's really interesting is that they weren't getting the malaria. They were differentiating between the two schools where the socks were collected. They were saying, because that's the scent. That was the primary scent. That school smells like this. This school smells like that. So they were alerting to the school. So you have to, it's really hard to train to get that 
this is what we're looking for. And, and they did it. And, and now the dogs are able to sniff out malaria. And the hope is that they can do a kind of a primary screening of people coming into countries where there is no more malaria or there's barely any yeah. malaria. And if they do stop someone, then they can get other tests to make sure that they're not coming in with malaria. Where is the United States in regards to the technology and I'd say we're right at the top. Oh, that's uh, yeah. so exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's We've great. got more and more universities getting in on that's it. That's fantastic. It's, it's really great. Um, and England has probably the best, well, the, the most diverse uh, place. It's called Medical Detection Dogs, and they're detecting all kinds of disease, and they were there right in the beginning of all of this. So they're really great as well, and they're a model that a lot of people follow. And everybody works with each other. Everybody learns from each other because best practices are hard to come by when you don't know what best practices are. Like, for instance, um, there's the clever Hans effect where if you're in the room, even if you don't know which sample that is positive for cancer, the dog kind of can read, thinks they're reading body language sometimes and might alert to something that's not the cancer. So they try to get people just to not be seen in the room so the dog doesn't read them because dogs, you know, they love to read us. They watch us all the time, right? They do. For any kind of cues. Yeah. So they're learning all the time. Even even how they collect samples. Like we shed so many skin cells. I'm, I'm here shedding skin cells <laughs> all over here. I'm sorry. Um, we all do. We, we shed like 50,000 skin cells a minute or something crazy like that. And the person who's preparing the sample might just maybe preparing all the positive samples and then someone else is preparing the negative ones. So they have to be, you know, there's so much they're learning about how to prepare these samples for the dogs. They don't want the, the dog to alert to me versus you, for instance. So there's a lot and they're learning a lot and it's really, it's really taking off now and everybody's working with each other and publishing papers and so pretty supportive from, from what I'm seeing. So it's, it's a really exciting time. Dr. Dogs can be found where? Bookstores, Bookstores libraries, online. online um, and I have listed all the online places on my website, mariagadavage.com. It's like good savage without the S. <laughs> uh, and um, it's, yeah, hopefully it's in a lot of places. Now, I know, too, there is a book launch event, October 26th. Ah, uh, yes. Is that still? That's a, a, that's a, a in, book passage in yes, Corta Madera. Corta Madera. It's a great bookstore. I did that's one last time. I'm actually going to have Clay Ronk and his dog Whitley oh, with me. Oh, you are? So I'm just going to sit back and let them take over because they're so yeah. great together. So, yeah, they're going to be there. They'll definitely they'll be such a draw. So I can't wait to see them again. And is he going to nursing school? He is. He's going to nursing school. And his goal is to become a flight nurse. Well, he's, he's preparing for nursing school. That's his goal, is to become a flight nurse which comes right back to when he had that emergency flight to San Francisco. It chills. Full I know. circle. It's I know. That full it's just, circle. Yeah. That's yeah. just so beautiful. He wants to help people so much, and he is so good at it. He's already um, a paramedic, an EMT. He, he did that in high school, and he's, he's going to do it. I know he's going to do it, and Whitley will be at his side for as long as she can. Tell people again where they can find you on the social on the socials. Um, well, you can go to my website, mariagodavage.com. That's good. Savage without the S. Sorry, my dad used to say that. So that's how we, he was a writer, too. Um, and uh, Facebook, you can look for soldier dogs because my other dogs' books were about military dogs. And these are kind of soldier dogs in their own way. And Maria, just look up my name on social media. But I have everything on my website. There we go, everyone. Dr. Dogs. Go get it. Arf, arf. Thank <laughs> you so much, Maria. Thank you. This it was, was really a joy. Fun. This was truly a joy. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks From for From executive joining. producers Kevin Undergaro, Maria Menounos, and Jeffrey Masters, 
Thanks for tuning in to Book Circle Online. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a comment. To suggest a book title or their author, you can tweet us at Book Circle On. This is Book Circle Online. Thanks for tuning in.